The opinions expressed by the host and guests on Where Did the Road Go are their own and do not represent those of WVBR or its management. Our aim is to explore the fringe, lost civilizations, alternative science, the paranormal, and much more. Join us on the web at WhereDidTheRoadGo.com where you can send us questions for our live or future guests via email or the live chat room. And remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. And now welcome to this week's edition of Where Did The Road Go? And I am your host, Soraya, here on Where Did The Road Go? And, uh... Before we get into our interview tonight, I just want to say we have uh, we have a lot of interesting stuff going on. If you go to the website, www.wheredidtheroadgo.com, uh, I have the schedule somewhat updated to about the mid- middle of June. We have some very unique and interesting guests coming up. Uh, you can also get the show now on Stitcher. I don't think I've ever mentioned that. Uh, maybe I did. But so you got YouTube, you got Vimeo, you got Stitcher, you got iTunes, you got an RSS feed right on the page. And the entire archive of the show going all the way back to the beginning is absolutely free and it's as of this point, I intend on keeping it that way. And hopefully we're going to have some video stuff up soon. There's a couple uh, interviews that were done with the video in studio uh, with the Ghost Hunters and with Peter Robbins. Yeah. And if you want to donate to help us cover server costs, you can do that on the website, too. So uh, I hope you're enjoying what you're hearing tonight. We have one of my favorite guests who we've had on a couple of times before, Mr. Randall Carlson. Are you with us, Randall? I'm with you, Soraya. I'm here. All right. And uh, you're based out of Atlanta, right? I'm based out of Atlanta, actually Decatur, which is sort of next to Atlanta. But, um, yeah. Okay. All right. And you could, uh, could think of it as Atlanta. Got, Decatur got swallowed up in the urban expansion of Atlanta. So, Gotcha. And uh, you're a part of Sacred Geometry International, which is one of your main focuses. Yeah. And, uh, but That's you, correct. And that, that involves not just sacred geometry, but also you've expanded it into uh, ideas of catastrophism and uh, like yeah. and how this stuff was lost initially and brought back. Yeah. There's a lot of interrelated things that are kind of like a little bit out of the mainstream, you know, and certainly sacred geometry is one of those um, that we've inherited from, you know, literally millennia ago. And catastrophism is one of those things that... Um, it's just so critically important, I think, to our own future, but it's also key to understanding our own past. And, you know, as far as when we talk about inherited traditions and legacies from from ancient cultures, you know, the, the sacred geometry is a big part of it, but so is the, the, the knowledge of uh, cyclical change and so forth. And that's kind of where the, the overlap comes between those in that, you know, in sacred geometry, one of the things I like to... Uh, emphasize to people is that you know you, you think geometry and you start immediately thinking spatial relationships you start thinking um patterns and figures and forms and and things like that i i like to emphasize to people that it's not only the geometry of space that's um that comes under the heading of sacred geometry but it's also the geometry of time and what that essentially implies is that in the ancient model of time it was cyclical rather than linear. Hmm. And there would be cycles within cycles. And, and of course, even today, in the sense that we look at time in the, in the near human scale, we can see that, you know, we have the cycle of the day. Obviously, that's a cycle. It's a 24-hour cycle, and it's an astronomically-based cycle, which is um, the planet rotating once on its axis. And then we have the cycle of the year, which is the planet revolving about the sun, right? Well, 
we could carry it to the next level and say, well, there's another third motion of the Earth, which is the precession of the equinoxes. And this was in most of the ancient cultures that it had a, a model of a of a greater cycle beyond our annual cycle, the great year cycle, if you will. The precession of the equinoxes seemed to be um, the key to to the measurement of that cycle. And so what we've inherited from that has generally been consigned to the, um, you know, under the heading of astrology when we start talking about the, the succession of ages, when we're talking about the, the succession of ages from the age of Pisces into the upcoming age of Aquarius and so forth. What we're talking about is the position of the, the, the um, vernal equinox um, at the at the you know, uh, relative to the constellations, the 12 constellations of the Zodiac. And so the vernal equinox transits through those 12 signs of the Zodiac, one sign on average roughly every 2,100 years, which means that it takes about 26,000 years for that full cycle to unfold. And within that cycle, there are a series of numbers generated. Um, you might think of their idealized um, durations for these cycles. And when you begin to look at them, like the, the number associated with the processional cycle in terms of the ancient traditions is usually 25,920. And these, uh, this, just like the, the annual year, divides up into four seasons of 12 months. This greater year, the processional cycle, which we'll, we'll refer to as the great year, divides up into four seasons and 12 months, with each of the months being an astrological age, such as we talked about, age of Taurus, age of Aries, age of Pisces, age of Aquarius, and so forth. Now, when you begin to measure these, what you discover is that the numbers that, um, that measure these are numbers that are also found embedded in the forms of geometry. So that, for example, a season of the great year, which was three signs or three cosmic months, would be 6,480 years. Well, then when we turn over to the subject of geometry and talk about the measurement of spatial relationships, we discover that 6,480 degrees is the angular measure, the total angular measure for the dodecahedron, one of the five regular platonic solids. And the, um, the, the number usually used in traditional um, models to talk about the cosmic month or an astrological age, such as Pisces or Aquarius, is 2,160 years. And 2,160 is the total number of degrees measures that measures the cube, which is another one of the five of the regular platonic solids. And so these are just examples of what I'm talking about. In other words, when we get into sacred geometry, we're also talking about the sacred geometry not only of space, but of time as well. And we discover that the same set of sacred numbers, if you will, the same canon of numbers will measure both the fundamental relationships that we find spatially expressed in geometry and cyclically expressed or temporally expressed, um, you know, through these various cycles. And... Um, the thing then that leads us into catastrophism is that I've, through my own research, come to the conclusion that the tempo of many of these catastrophes seems to be tied in to this cyclic, uh, this periodicity, these, these unfolding periodicities. So, for example, 
if we go back one full cycle ago, 26,000 years ago, we discovered that there was a, a major climate shift that occurred that usually is, is described by clim- paleoclimatologists, guys who study the ancient uh, climate change, as being the transition into what they called the late Wisconsin phase of the, the Great Ice Age. And essentially what we did was we, we went from a, a, a period of time that had been for roughly thirteen to 15,000 years, almost as warm as now, shifting into a period of full glacial cold within about 500 years to 1,000 years. And now then we see halfway through the cycle, about 13,000 years ago, there was an abrupt termination of the Ice Age. You know, again, there was some impetus, some input into the terrestrial climate system that caused a major change. And I've got a lot of this stuff is documented pretty pretty extensively on the Sacred Geometry website, showing that there's a, a tempo of these, uh, these great global upheavals and changes and so forth that can apparently be measured by the by the tempo or pace of the the so-called great year, which is this model that we've inherited from ancient times. We don't really know the source of it, Um, but it's very old. Now, Walter Cruttenton has done some work on this and suggests that there is a uh, second star to our star system that that is causing this, this rotation around the great year, that we're actually in a binary system. Do you think that's a possibility? Sure. I mean, I, I have not studied his work to where I can give any kind of authoritative opinion on it, but sure, I think it's a possibility. Uh, there's some interesting ideas uh, as to what is ultimately, I mean, the, the kind of the, the, the standard explanation is that it's the combined gravitational effects of the sun, the moon, and the planets on the actual tilt of the earth. And I haven't gone into it in depth to where I could say, yeah, there's a second star system. I, I, again, I should be should look at his work because it sounds very intriguing and that's a possibility um another possibility has been expressed through a number of uh sacred systems that i've looked at would seem to suggest that perhaps what we're actually seeing is the rotation of our solar system with respect to a larger center somewhere between that of our solar system and the galactic center Mm which is kind of an interesting idea. And there seems to be even, in fact, a sort of a local galactic neighborhood of stars that could be a part of this system. And almost, almost in a sense, like our um, solar system ex- expanded to the next higher octave or the next higher level so that um, you have a group of stars that are perhaps related within a, a common orbital system uh, orbiting some center that may or may not have an actual object there at at its center. Um, and then that, in turn, is rotating around the center of the galaxy. But I don't think you'd find an astronomer who would, would stake his reputation upon supporting such a contention. But at the same time, there are some subtleties within the, within the parameters of the whole orbiting system that, that don't rule that out. You see, because there are like I said, the number of stars that seem to lie in the same plane, they're roughly within 20 light years of the Earth, and they all seem to be moving at frequencies that would suggest that perhaps they're orbiting a common center. Like Sirius is probably the most well-known of the stars, which seems to perhaps lie closer to the center, maybe maybe even almost on the the center of that rotational system. In fact, some... uh, some traditions have maintained that Sirius is 
actually a greater star around which ours is rotating, or actually revolving, to use the correct term. I don't know if I necessarily accept that. I don't reject it. I don't accept it. Um, what strikes me as perhaps more plausible is that in the same way that when we, we look at Venus or Mercury, Mercury is a better example because Mercury is very close to our Earth's revolving center because it's so close to the Sun. And of course, our Earth is actually not revolving around the center of the Sun, it's revolving around the barycenter of the Sun, which is, which is not the center of the Sun, it's actually displaced from that. Um, and if the, if the uh, dimensions of our solar system were somewhat larger, the barycenter could actually be outside the physical mass of the Sun. And which means we're orbiting a center which there is actually nothing there. But um, so Sirius, I'm inclined to think that perhaps Sirius is close to the orbital center, the, the hypothetical orbital center, um, rather than being the center itself. But these are really interesting questions, and, and it does seem like there are traditions um, in masonry. There are, you know, Sirius plays an important role in the Masonic tradition. Um, you know, it, it keeps cropping up over and over again in various traditions um, and was always very important to ancient cultures for some reason or another. Yeah. So I don't reject that idea out of hand that um, there could be an orbital center. I don't reject the idea that, that Crittenden might be on to something with his binary star system. Well, one of the, the uh, possibilities for that, that binary star system is serious, that it is actually moving towards us and it's because it's connected somehow to our own sun. Mm -hmm. And there is a, yeah, I'm gonna, there's a group called the uh, Sirius Foundation who has uh, tried to research this and shows that there are some magnetic connections or, or something between Sirius and us. Like, like our, as Sirius B moves around Sirius A, it affects the, the uh, spin of the Earth slightly. Aha. Uh -huh. That's interesting. Yeah. And it, it, you yeah, know, it takes them a while to actually be able to get this data together, so they don't have a lot of it, but it is, it is compelling in what they do have. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, we, we do have a, a question from one of our listeners who wants to know uh, what the connection between alchemy and sacred geometry is, particularly the, uh, the, ge as the geometry as associated with the lab work itself. Ah, well, <clears throat> well, I'm not a practicing alchemist, but I do know that from having read a lot, quite a few alchemical tracts over the years, that geometry does seem to be a fundamental, um, a, a sort of a prerequisite to understanding uh, the whole process. One of the um, the great alchemical tracts, Atalanta Fugens, uh, has one of the early uh, woodcuts in it that basically shows the alchemist with a huge pair of compasses. Maybe you've seen this. Um, inscribing a, 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 some circles and squares and human figures on a brick wall. And the title that goes along with that is Geometry is the Key to Breaking Down the Wall of Mystery. And my hunch on this would be that when you begin to immerse yourself into sacred geometry, you discover that there are these key proportions that occur over and over again. You know, one of the more famous ones being the so-called golden section or divine proportion. But you also have the square root of two, the square root of three, the square root of five. Um, you have a, a number of others, and it's likely that proportion is key to understanding uh, the whole alchemical work. In in other words, without the correct proportions, you aren't going to get the outcome when you start, um, you know, amalgamating your your raw materials. 
And so I think that perhaps sacred geometry does provide a key. You know, it, it would seem like that it would be a very powerful ancillary study to the study of alchemy. Um, <clears throat> because in alchemy, generally, the, 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 the process is, is generally divided into 12 steps, which, again, the 12 steps would, would, would ally, align it with sacred geometry and so many of the, the models of sacred geometry where there are um, 12 steps, just like the first thing we started talking about was the great year model, which of course has the 12 astrological ages arrayed in a circle. And we could just get into all kinds of things there, like talking about the, you know, the 12 nights of the round table and the 12 labors of Hercules mm. being an alchemical allegory. Um, you know, um, the, the idea that in geometry, <clears throat> excuse me, in solid geometry, uh, it's well known that 12 spheres of the same diameter will exactly close pack or cluster around a 13th, just as six circles will exactly array themselves with points of tangency around a seventh. Um, so I, I would think that alchemy and sacred geometry would be very complementary um, disciplines to study, that one, particularly some of the mysteries of alchemy, which are very obscure, deliberately obscured uh, by, the, by the practitioners, many of those um, may be uh, made more accessible with an understanding of geometry. It was, you know, in the, in the book, um, Morning of the Magicians, written by um, Jacques Bergier and Louis Powell oh, many years ago, I think it was one of the very first books I ever read when I was still in high school, I've read it maybe at least once since then. But there's a, there's a part in there where Jacques Bergier was a, a, a young uh, uh, nuclear physicist working in a laboratory in Paris prior to the outbreak of World War II. And in the book, he writes that he believes that, uh, that probably one of the few alchemists who had ever accomplished the summum bonum or great work during the 20th century was this mysterious character called Fulcanelli. And in this book, he writes that um, Fulcanelli, presume of the presumed Fulcanelli, would show up regularly at the laboratory to discuss matters of uh, you know advanced nuclear physics with the the head of the laboratory, who was Andre Hellbronner, who at the time was probably one of only three in the world, along maybe with Leo Szilard and, and Albert Einstein, who understood the implications of of nuclear fission. And in any case, he describes how one time uh, Andre Hellbronner was out and this mysterious, distinguished elderly gentleman came in and he had an extended conversation with him. During this conversation, um, the man quoted to him, they got into the discussion of what they, were, what they were working on in the laboratory. And the man says to Jacques Bergier, the man that Bergier believed to be Fulcanelli said that certain geometrical arrangements of highly purified materials are enough to release nuclear forces without recourse to either electricity or vacuum techniques, which were the predominant techniques that were being employed in the laboratories at that time. And which is interesting because, as it turned out, nuclear fission did depend upon a, a very strict geometric arrangement of the raw materials in order to achieve a successful fission. And it turned out, interestingly, that the, um, that the, the particular geometry was the geometry of the, the hexagon and pentagon combined, which, you know, in a, a soccer ball array. And so right there, that kind of leads us one to think that perhaps, you know, again, it, it boils down to the fact that 
um, the geometrical arrangement of the raw materials is critical to achieving the transmutation. And at this point, that's probably all I could really say on the matter. Okay. Well, for not knowing much, you knew a lot about that. <laughs> um, now, tomorrow, uh, Sunday, the, the 4th, I believe, you're doing uh, something with the Georgia Guidestones, aren't you? Yeah, we're just going to, there's a few people here locally that have never seen them, and it's a, and it's a real nice area. It's going to be a beautiful spring day tomorrow. Um, so my protege in a lot of this, Cameron, has kind of set this thing up, and we're going to just take a, a cruise out there, spend the afternoon, and I'm going to just, we're going to just kind of show it to some of these folks. You know, it's going to be an opportunity for me to meet some folks. Um, uh, Hendrick, uh, that does Red Ice oh. Radio, is going to be there. I've never met him, but I've done, I think, three interviews with those guys now. Yeah. And he's moved from, from Scandinavia to North Carolina. So I didn't know we were going to rendezvous. Yeah, we are going to rendezvous. I hope it's not some you know, classified information or anything, but uh, <laughs> I, probably not. But, um, yeah, so him and, and Gabriel Roberts, who has just uh, published the book Hypnosis, and uh, David Metcalf, who, uh, you know, interesting young writer who's, mm -hmm. who's made a lot of contributions to Reality Sandwich. So it's going to be an interesting group of people, and I guess some of these folks haven't seen the Guidestones. Um you know, I don't know if I necessarily have anything original to say on them, um, but they are interesting, and I, you know, I'm going to maybe attempt to explain the astronomy as I understand it that's incorporated into its design, and um, you know, maybe just look around in the area because it's it's a real nice area. Um, where are you out of Soraya? We're up we're upstate New York. We're in Ithaca. Okay. Oh yeah, that's right. I remember now. We we talked about that because that's one of my favorite places yes. where you're at. And I, in fact, I gave you a homework assignment. You were supposed to go out and investigate some some of the gorges and features, and I don't know if you've done that. Um, not, not yet. Uh-oh. You're, you're in trouble now. <laughs> well, we were also hoping you were going to make a trip up here at some point. Well, I still am hoping that I'm going to do that. And that maybe could happen before the summer's over. We'll just see how, how the economics goes. My businesses that was going like gangbusters then almost went under um, oh. during the recession is now climbing back so you know i've kind of got an income going with that again and if i start doing some lecture do the lecture circuit again um yeah because i used to do regularly three research trips at least every year uh, mm -hmm. i did that for about 15 years and then the last major trip i did was in december of 2010 when i did a two-week uh tour of egypt um studying the temples over there and i haven't really done much since then in the way of, of traveling so I'm itching um, and I'm just going to sign a couple of fairly large contracts that I'm about to embark on a couple of projects, building projects here locally and that hopefully will provide me the resources to once again resume my, my traveling and my research so if that happens I will be up that way again because I've <clears throat> there was a lot to check out up there and the one the trip that I made up there back in two th it actually was October of 2001 because I can remember it was right after the whole 9-11 thing mm. and that the paranoia of that was still hanging over. In fact, I had I had um, actually reserved my plane tickets from Atlanta up to um, Buffalo, you know, a week or so prior to that fateful day. So <clears throat> yeah, and I haven't been up there since, but what I discovered was very interesting stuff. Um, you know, the origin of some of the, the geomorphic and geological features up there and how they relate to 
these great catastrophes that I've been studying and, and researching, particularly the one that terminated the last ice age, which is, uh, from from all the evidence that I'm looking at, probably was the greatest catastrophe suffered by this planet within the last five million years. Yeah. And, and, you know, pretty much constitutes the great dividing line of human history. Is, you know, we may have talked about this on our last interview, but, you know, I mentioned, and I frequently bring this up and, you know, point out that, you know, we modern humans... Um, have been on the planet for about 150 to 180,000 years minimum, and that's based on actual hard evidence, skeletal stuff, not not hearsay, not channeled information, you know, not obscure footprints that may or may not be humans, but actual verifiable, datable, skeletal remains of modern humans are ranging between 150 and 180,000 years. But even there, you're, you, you can figure that, you know, if... if, if um, Human history is is only uh, five thousand years old. You know, you're looking at twenty times the length of human history that that uh, modern humans have been around. And what I'm basically one of the premises that I'm working from, and one of the ideas I'm trying to promote and get people to start thinking of, is that that the that the real story of humanity on Earth has yet to be accessed, and it's partially because, or mainly because, it's essentially behind this veil. Of, of events that happened between like 10 and 13,000 years ago that essentially separates what would be the modern uh, period of history from deep history. And, you know, if we look at things, uh, we look at the rise of, of, of modern history, and we say, okay, domestication of animals. You know, you start doing research on that, you're generally going to see that animals were domesticated between eight and 10,000 years ago. If you look at the dispersion of languages, most of the, the languages, the, the, the linguistic branches of human language go back to about eight or 10,000 years ago. If you look at the advent of agriculture, again, eight to 10,000 years ago, um, you look at the first cities, again, eight, 9,000 years ago. <clears throat> This is interesting because this is generally seen that for however long humanity existed before these things started to manifest themselves, that we would consider the emergence of civilization, even in a, in a, in a rudimentary form, that for, for all of those long ages and countless generations, there was, this, in effect, no accumulated learning or no um, organization of human uh, beings into societies that could leave any kind of an imprint that we could say, yes, yeah, there were cities 15 or 20,000 years ago or there were organized cultures or civilizations. And so we assume that during all of that period of time, human beings were, you know, we've got the, the, the stereotypical model of the caveman, you know, alley-oop kind of grunting and living in the cave. And for how many generations, for how many tens of thousands of years are we now assuming that people lived this primitive subsistence existence? Well, what I'm trying to point out is that, no, there's no telling what kind of experiments in, in culture and in civilization could have arisen and disappeared within the vast change that have swept over this planet repeatedly. And there could have been a, a whole lot more going on 20 or 30,000 or 40,000 years ago than anybody has ever scientifically accepted. And the reason that usually the idea of any kind of advanced culture 
beyond going back into into Paleolithic times and, and beyond is because of the lack of hard evidence. But right. then I like to point out that well, once we begin to understand some of these these extraordinary extreme events that have engulfed this planet repeatedly, and then we were to we were to say what would happen if one of those type of events were to occur today, what would be the implications for our own civilization? And and if we looked at the events of 10 to 12,000 years ago, it is clear that what we would be talking about is pretty much the complete erasure of human civilization and, and essentially the rebooting. We would, not to cause the extinction of the human species, but the extinction of human culture and essentially putting human beings in a survival mode where we would be climbing back up out of the Stone Age. And so what I'm trying to get people to, to reconsider is the possibility that what we're really looking at eight to ten thousand years ago is is a rebooting of human civilization right okay. and once you begin to understand how extensive some of these global changes have been it's it's not hard to conceive that yeah um were they to occur again today yeah you could pretty much kiss this whole experimental this whole experiment in civilization that we've got going it's gone right um and going back to the Georgia Guidestones, the uh, the writings on the Guidestones, to me, uh, seem pretty common sense if you were coming from uh, a catastrophe. For instance, I, I wonder if the, whoever put these things up, and no one knows who put them up, but uh, whoever put these things up, put them up so that maybe they would survive another cataclysm and then give some guides for rebuilding society rather than what some conspiracy theorists think that they're, it's an agenda by some Illuminati group to wipe out the population and such. Well, my personal opinion on that is that's just utterly silliness. And, and what, I would, what I would speculate is that it was most likely a group of regional businessmen, probably who, who were most likely Masons. And, and, and I you know, will have to admit that a lot of Masons uh, you know, love a good mystery. And you know, you figure that Joe Fendley, the the owner of the quarry that provided the stones and was the general contractor on it, he was a Freemason. If you look at um, the banker, I think, if I'm recalling right, he was also a Freemason. The, um, oh, several of the key figures, the, 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 the farmer that provided the land was a Freemason. These guys probably all knew each other. And really, when you look at it, you know, this idea that it was a, uh, you know, I mean, the whole project was a, cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. But, you know, you think, okay, well, some, you know, some grand conspiracy consisting of some, you know, all-powerful Illuminati or whatever could probably afford to do something on a little grander scale than a couple of hundred thousand bucks. <laughs> I mean, you know, a couple of hundred thousand bucks is totally within the, within the, the, the reach of, you know, a, a local of uh, a group of local Masonic businessmen that basically want to create some kind of an attraction for their local community, and you know, endow it with an air of mystery. Hmm. And yeah, that's generally how I tend to look at it. Okay. Right. Now, not to say that it doesn't have some interesting uh, ideas in it. You know, I mean, some of the things that may or may not. You know, some of the things I would probably go along with that sound pretty good. You know, like. One of them says, avoid petty laws and useless officials. I love that one. <laughs> um, yes. 
But then, you know, it says maintain humanity under, a, what is it, 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Well, I look at that in a couple of different ways. Because, you know, one thing, yeah, if there was a great global catastrophe, 500,000 might be a realistic number of survivors. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, basically what we're looking at now is what are we, what are we up to, 6 billion now? Something like that. 7 billion? Yeah, I haven't counted recently, but I think 6 billion. Uh, and, you know, about... So what is that about, um, oh, you know, I don't know, what is that? Probably, what, 10% of the, the population of humanity, roughly, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you know, that that wouldn't be unrealistic in, in the wake of the type of global catastrophes that I was just talking about. Right. Um, that there might be 10% of the people. Um, you know, some of them, you know, are just, I think, maybe there to just stimulate discussion, you know, Unite humanity with a living new language. That's interesting. I don't know how we would practically conceive of such a thing. Um, true. You know, true. Look, what are some of the others? I think I have them here somewhere. Uh, prize, truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Then, you know, that sounds pretty good to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of there's an environmental twist on it. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Things like that. Um, I guess the most controversial would be the thing maintain humanity right. under 500 million um and the and the assumption is that they're they're talking about exterminating people until we have 500 million where like i said i would think of it as that they've made these giant structures maybe to withstand a cataclysm and then you know on the other side let's not overpopulate and cause the same problems we have now mm-hmm. sure yeah and and you know i i think that the planet is fully capable of, of supporting comfortably 10 billion people. Um, I, you know, probably not much more than that, but you know what, what we actually see happening is that human population does seem to be leveling off that, that exponential curve seems to be flattening out. And, you know, I mean, they're off talking now about how a lot of the advanced countries are actually having a, a net population loss. And as the third world countries become more, more settled and more technologically advanced and economically advanced, they will start having fewer kids. And essentially what we're going to see is, is a leveling off somewhere between six and 10 billion people. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, with, with, you know, human ingenuity and our, you know, evolving technologies and our ability to do more with less, I think, you know, the planet shouldn't have a problem supporting 10 billion people, particularly if we move, uh, you know, advance into, uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of, uh, of space exploration, space development, space colonization. Um, and, you know, that's, that's just a, a whole infinite frontier that lies before the human species right now that seems to have kind of fallen off the radar screen somewhat because, you know, people just aren't talking about it very much. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was coming up, you know, in the 60s and early 70s, you know, you know, I certainly believed that, you know, that we were you know, destined to become a, a cosmic civilization easily within my lifetime. And, you know, think about this, you know, 2001 came out in 1968. And I don't think anybody who saw that in 1968 would imagine, yeah, by 2001, yeah, we're going to be having orbiting hotels and, you know, making manned uh, expeditions to Jupiter. If you look at NASA's timetable from that period back then, you know, we were going to have a, have a uh, you know, a permanent uh, lunar colony by the end of the 70s and the first manned expedition to mars by the mid 80s and you know even by the early 80s they were talking about how we could have had 
or we could be harvesting asteroids literally by the turn of the century. And all of this, just it's just like when, you know, in, in uh, whatever it was, 1961, when, when, uh, when Kennedy set the goal and said, we're going to, you know, land a man on the moon before the decade is out, and we mobilized our resources and we actually did it. I mean, right now, we're actually closer to being able to harvest the resources of asteroids now than we were of putting a man on the moon in 1960. Hmm. And it's just that the will is not there like it was. The vision is not there like it was. But I expect the next time a small little asteroid, maybe, uh, you know, 100 feet bigger than the one that came in over Chelyabinsk uh, in February of 2013, is going to serve as a major wake-up call for the human species. Because, you see... When you, you know what I'm talking about, right? On yes. February 15th yeah. of last year, that a small asteroid about, if I'm recalling right, it was 50 to 70 feet in diameter, uh, came in and exploded about eight miles up in the air, and maybe it was 10 miles. I've forgotten some of the details now, but, but you know, if the uh, object had been a little bit bigger, if the object or, or had been a little bit more dense or had come in at a little steeper angle, it's very possible that rather than 1,200 injuries, there could have been 1,200 fatalities. Yeah. Were that to be the case, then I think that it would have had major um, repercussions in you know human thinking. As it did, it, it did serve as kind of a, 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 a momentary wake-up call for some folks, but it's like, well, now we've kind of forgotten again because over a year has gone by and, and nothing else has really happened on that but you know there's a lot of research out there that suggests that um, our encounters with things from space is on a cyclical timetable getting back to that uh, topic again and that um, perhaps these kinds of things there will be long periods of, of only sporadic encounters and then they are punctuated by uh, short periods of concentrated numerous encounters and if that's the case then uh, you know, that becomes a, a new way of explaining a lot of the mysteries of, of history that and why so many cultures have disappeared over, over the millennia um, and why, for example, climate has changed so dramatically, uh, through, you know, in the past, right. um, which it has. I mean, when you start studying the history of climate, um, you know, during the past, like the Holocene, which is the last 10,000 years, or we go back even farther than that, we discovered that there have been some inexplicably extreme and rapid climate changes. And, and it has nothing to do with how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. Um, there has to be some other stimulus that's, that's provoking the climate to change. You know, we're talking now since the Industrial Revolution began, I think the estimates are roughly 0.8 degrees centigrade the, the climate has warmed in 150 years. Well, you know, at the end of the last ice age, there was a, a, a transition called the, the um, it was the um, Younger Dryas transition, where it was the uh, pre-boreal Younger Dryas transition, which occurred right at 13,000 years ago. And this was followed by another uh, extreme event about 1,400 years later. Both of these events involved sudden changes in ambient temperature of up to about 15 to 20 degrees, uh, centigrade, and this, these changes occurred like in less than five years. We have no way of, yet of explaining how this magnitude of climate change could have occurred so fast, uh, unless we begin opening the possibility that, you know, there are a lot more cosmic encounters than anybody has previously estimated. In fact, 
a group of NASA astronauts just a few weeks ago, I don't know if you caught this, were, were um, promoting, the New York Times did a, bit, a big article on it, promoting the idea that we're actually three to four times more likely to get impacted than anybody was even imagining a few years ago. Wow. So, you know, that becomes a, uh, you know, I think something that we need to really be considering. And, you know, when, when some of the ideas were first being proposed, oh, back in the 70s, uh, for the, the potential of, of human colonization of space, there was a lot of resistance to that on the part of, you know, because as a proponent of it myself, I would talk to people about it, you know, when I was first starting to do classes and lectures, and a lot of the, the response that I most frequently got was this, well, we've got so many problems here on Earth that we shouldn't be worrying about, you know, <laughs> trying to explore space when we've got so many problems here. Well, right. you know, my response to that then was, well, show me how we're, you know, are you talking about changing human nature or, you know, how are we going to solve these problems? And it could be that, um, you know, maybe the solution to so many of the problems that you might invoke happens to be simply that, yeah, we're, we're, we're growing to become, you know, 5 billion and 6 billion, maybe 10 billion people. And maybe what that is telling us is that, yeah, maybe maybe human beings really do have a destiny to move into space and, and begin to explore and develop the resources of space. Because, you know, the, the resources of Earth, to me, are going to, are, are, there's enormous, enormous resources, but they are finite. But as soon as we move outside the, the sphere of the Earth, we're looking at infinite resources, infinite material resources, infinite energy resources. Um, you know, so solar energy is really going to be the energy that drives civilization in space because you can essentially take one square meter of free space outside of the Earth's atmosphere, go up, say, 1,500 miles outside the gravity well of Earth. One square meter of free space is going to have about 10 times the available solar energy that you would find on a, a solar collector placed in the middle of Death Valley in the middle of the summer at noon on a clear day. Hmm. So, you know, it's here in space that really solar energy is be, going to become a viable means of powering civilization. Okay, There's a lot more we could talk about as far as that goes, but that kind of brings us back to the Guidestones in that perhaps maybe, you know, when we're looking at the end of the Aquarian age, which, you know, we're looking at 2,000, 2,500 years from now, maybe the majority of human beings will be living in space, and there will only be, a ha uh, you know, 500 million people back here on planet Earth, tending Earth as the garden vacation paradise center of the solar system. Interesting. That, that would be kind of nice, I think. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think so, too. And plus the fact that, you know, basically what we're doing is diversifying our, our probabilities of, of surviving as a species because, um, hey, one of the messages that I've been trying to get out here in you know, everything that I'm doing is, look, we are cosmically vulnerable, whether we like it or not. And the climate has changed dramatically and catastrophically over and over and over again. And, you know, this is why I'm a little bit dismayed that the whole climate change discussion has been, in my opinion, hijacked to focus exclusively on carbon dioxide. And I think that, you know, we've learned some good stuff by studying about the greenhouse effect and how it works and all that, but I think one of the clear insights that we've gained is, look, there are other processes at work. CO2 is not the only driver of climate change. In fact, it's probably a minor player in the long term. 
Okay, we got to take a quick 45-second break. We'll be right back with Randall Carlson here on Where Did the Road Go? The opinions expressed by the host and guests on Where Did the Road Go? are their own and do not represent those of WVBR or its management. Join us on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com where you can send us questions for our live guests via email or the live chat room. You can also check out our upcoming schedule, blog, link section, book reviews, videos, and links to our Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and much more. That's wheredidtheroadgo.com. Yes, and uh, I'm your host, Soraya. We're talking to Randall Carlson tonight. I should also point out that if you missed the live show, we are also rebroadcast on uh, Dark Matter Radio on Sunday night and Monday night on Deprogrammed Radio. The links are at wheredidtheroadgo.com, and they also have some other programming akin to this that you can check out. And uh, so, Randall, we have a follow-up question to what we were talking about earlier on uh, alchemy. And uh, the listener was wondering if you could explain a little about the hexagon pentagon Pentagon uh, relationship, if you don't mind. Oh, uh, it, well, what can I, you know, basically what you do is just picture a soccer ball. And basically that's, that's the closest to what you're going to get to a uranium pile. Um, I don't know what else, how else I could explain it really other than that. It, it, it's the configuration is that of a soccer ball with the linked pentagon and uh, hexagon faces. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm not a nuclear physicist. But, you know, I've looked into it enough to know that the, that the geometry is coincident with, with, you know, a lot of the things that I studied in sacred geometry. Um, you know, it's the... Um, it's the, the same geometry as the buckyball, the fullerene. Hmm, okay. Right. And you might be able to find some sources of it online. I don't know. I haven't looked. Um, I mean, we're looking into stuff that I researched 20 years ago, so I'm <laughs> a little bit, little bit fuzzy on that, you know. Um, All right, that's fine. If, 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 the, if the, the questioner wants to send an email via, you know, the Sacred Geometry website, I can put them on to some... Uh, some sources to research, plus probably send them some graphics and imagery that might help to explain it, and then that would also refresh my own, uh, you know, my own understanding of of the whole process. And, and what is the Sacred Geometry site? Well, that would be sacredgeometryinternational.com. dot com. Right. One word: sacredgeometryinternational.com. dot com. And there's a you know a link on there that he can he can correspond with us and just. Send in his question, and I'll I'll try to get to it in the next, you know, pretty soon. Okay. Um, so, in the last part of the show here, I want to talk to you a little about, bit about Freemasonry. Um, we sure. mentioned it a few times during this talk, uh, but you are a Mason, correct? Correct. And uh, I guess. What do you think of the, the conspiracy theories that the Masons are the ones running everything, that they're tied in with the Illuminati, and so on and so forth? Have you ever seen any evidence of this? Do you think it's based on anything? Well, I think it's pretty much based on nothing. Um, although, I, you know, I will confess, yeah, I actually am in control of everything. <laughs> um, I just, I don't like it to get out, though. Well, um, sure, sure. Yeah, but yeah, I'm the guy who's pulling all the strength... No, I, I, you know, it's, I, you know, I sometimes I don't even know where to start. I think it's so silly. Um, you know, it's the problem is is Masons have had, you know, a big part of the whole Masonic um, approach is is this secrecy. But you know what that does is it it's because 
Freemasonry has come out of the Middle Ages during periods of time where, you know, free thought was not allowed. And if you expressed, you know, if you went against the, the dictates of the, um, you know, the authoritarian church, I mean, you could literally pay with your life. I mean, all we have to do is look at what happened to, to Galileo, what almost happened to him, what happened to Giordano Bruno when he was burned at the stake. Um, so, you know, there was a period of time there where Masons basically had to conduct themselves in secret and, and hold their meetings in secret and, and develop a sort of a complex system of, of, of handshakes and passwords and means of recognition, basically just to survive in a, in a, uh, in a society where free thought was not permitted. Um, but, you know, the fact is that, that a lot of prominent men through history uh, have been Freemasons. Uh, but, you know, a lot of prominent men have been lots of other things, too. Right. You know, I mean, you know, verified there were 14 Masonic presidents, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what's verified. There may have been a couple of more, you know, like Jefferson. It's iffy. There's no record of Jefferson having been initiated in a lodge. But if you read a lot of his writings, he has these throwaway passages that are straight out of Masonic ritual, which makes one wonder. Generally, Thomas Jefferson is not considered to have been a Mason. But, but verified there were 14 presidents that were Freemasons. Of the 44 presidents, half of them, I think 21 or 22 of them, were Episcopalians. <laughs> now, that suggests to me that it's really the Episcopalians <laughs> who, are, who are the puppet masters, you see. Right. You, you, you could come with any group you want, and, and that's, that's a true figure. Half of the presidents, American presidents, were Episcopalians. My point being is that, yeah, you could pick out any group you want like that. You could, you could string together this, like, six degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of thing and connect up, you know, all kinds of dots and come up with a scenario that essentially, you know, has no basis in reality. And, you know, when it's interesting, if you look at the last 20 years, of history, I would challenge some of these guys to show that, that believe that. Well, to sh name some, you know, name some of these people, you know, that that were Freemasons that had anything to do with anything, you know, uh, prominent within the last twenty or thirty years. I mean, the last president that was a Freemason was Gerald Ford, mm -hmm. right? Now, since then, we have not had a Masonic president. The, the previous president to him that was a, uh, a Freemason was Harry Truman. Okay, so, you know, Gerald Ford was a, a Mason. I don't know, that doesn't prove anything. Since then, if you look at who has been really pulling the strings on our foreign policy, our economic policy, there's very few, if any, Masons involved in that. You know, um, you know, the Bush administration, there was probably a scattering or a few Masons in there, but George Bush and most of his cabinet, and they were not Freemasons, right? I mean, it, again, it's just like, you know, they make these claims, you know, that Masons are, you know, part of this. You know, and then the Illuminati, you know, again, I say, show me some hard evidence. Show me, name some names. Show me some people who are actually Illuminati. And what, what does that mean? It, you know, it doesn't really mean anything, you know. The Illuminati were a group started by Adam Weishaupt back in 1776 that existed for a few years and then disbanded, right? right. And that we can historically verify. Beyond that, you show me some hard evidence. Show me some documentation. I haven't seen it. I, you know, this. I've been hearing these kinds of claims for for twenty years now, and have never really yet seen any tangible evidence, other than, you know, 
not to say that there aren't conspiracies, certainly. I mean, anybody, it's naive to think that those who are in power or those who covet power do not conspire to achieve those ends. Oh, sure. But, but the, the, the Freemasons, you know, no, I, I, I just, I actually find that ludicrous. Especially having been a Freemason now for, what, 30, going about 35 years now, and I've known a lot of prominent Freemasons, and... Yes, I can say unequivocally none of them were involved in any kind of grand global conspiracy. Do you, do you think the Freemason lineage connects back to the Templars, as some people suppose? Oh, I think that's very plausible, yes. Now, I'm not in any way trying to diminish what I think is the importance of Freemasonry, because, you know, if you look at the philosophy of Freemasonry, I mean, it's about freedom, it's about brotherhood, I mean, it's about, you know, morally upright behavior, nowhere in any of it do you find any reference to, yeah, but this is all just a front. We're putting on this front <laughs> so that really behind the scenes we can perpetrate this monstrous evil on the world. Um, you know, um, but yeah, as far as your question, yeah, I think that's very plausible. I think that, you know, we can, we, we can trace modern historical masonry back to 1717, right? And what you, what you had there was a consolidation of four different lodges in the British Isles, but those lodges already existed. And I think that a strong historical case can be made linking modern Freemasonry back to both the Templars and the guilds of Masonic builders that were involved in, in the great cathedral building era. Now, before that, you know, it becomes, the links become more tenuous, but, you know, traditionally, Masons, um, trace their pedigree back to the building of King Solomon's Temple, which was 3,000 years ago. I have written several articles that are on the website getting into that aspect of history, um, from like the Dionysian artificers, uh, the Roman College of Architects that followed them, the Comachines that followed them after the collapse of the Roman Empire, showing that there is, you know, stages within the historical process that where you find the similarities, you know, where the, the rituals are very similar, where the symbolism is very similar, where the philosophy is very similar. And, uh, yeah, but, but we cannot trace an unbroken chain back beyond um, the Middle Ages. Uh, I think the earliest, actually, record of a Masonic initiation was King Athelstan in Britain, and I think it was like in the mid-900s, if, if memory serves me correctly. Um, and that's just kind of like, you know, at that point, it's sort of the, the, the paper trail disappears. You know, then we get back into the, the period that was probably bridged by the Comachines, who were the, um, you know, occupied the um, island of Como, which was or, or an island in the Lake Como in Italy. And um, I think they formed around the 3rd to 4th century A.D., and probably past their legacy of sacred geometry and symbolism and building philosophy and so on onto these Lombardic builders that migrated to Europe and then set up the, the guild system oh, in the early 1100s. Okay, and, and I should say that... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to say, what role does, does sacred geometry, do you think, play in this transmission of knowledge that has gone on well, through the it, Freemasons? For one thing, it, it provides a vehicle, a symbolical vehicle, because, you know, in Freemasonry, you know, we talk about, you know, being on the square. You know, and so much of our, our you know, common lingo that we kind of hear in everyday speech actually has a Masonic origin. You know, when you 
conclude business with somebody and you do that final handshake and you say, are we square? Mm. You know, that purely comes directly out of the Masonic ritual. Um, you know, when we talk about being morally upright, uh, the word for that is rectitude. And in masonry, there's the symbol for that is the plumb bomb, you know, which all builders use to determine uh, a perfect vertical. Um, there's many examples of that that, that one could invoke. Um, to show that masonry has had this kind of, you know, when we talk about, you know, giving somebody the third degree, well, that was because in the third degree of masonry, that's the degree where your metal is tested, so to speak, to see if you are worthy to move on to some of the divulgences of the, the higher information that you would find in the higher degrees. So, you know, the initiation process in Freemasonry is a, a three-stage process, three degrees. There's, a, there's an initiatory phase, there's a craftsman phase, and then there's the master's phase. In order to become um, endowed with, the, with the, uh, the, the pedigree of master, you have had to have gone through the third degree. And I will say that the third degree is much milder now than it once was, because it was once, you know, if you go back into the ancient orders, um, and you look at what they were like in the Dionysian um, orders, which were also had three degrees. You know, the, the third degree was apparently a matter of life and death. Um, but now, of course, you know, no one is actually really, you know, put in any danger. It's all symbolical. Right. But the idea is, is that you know, there's, you know, the whole idea behind masonry, and essentially, is is being reborn. It, you know. It has a, it's a Christian ethos, you know, because in Christianity, you've got the idea of being reborn into spirit, you know. That's what the whole baptism is about, you know, when, you, when you're immersed in the water, and you, you emerge from the water reborn, you know. And, and, of course, what that ultimately harkens back to is the fact that humanity as a whole once emerged from the water, um, you know, the waters of the great floods that swept over the earth at the end of the last ice age. Mm. And they, they were monumental biblical scale floods indeed they were i mean you had whole landscapes just literally washed away um and that's something you know we again if we probably don't have time to get into that tonight but um well we went over know, that a lot i think in the last interview yeah i think we did yeah you're right yeah we sure did so you know the idea i think you know in in the christian ethos is that, you know, as an individual, you're immersed in the water and you're reborn out of the water, but collectively, we as humanity uh, basically drowned in these great floods that swept over the earth and emerged as a new humanity, you know, 10,000 years ago. And, and free, um, Freemasonry itself isn't necessarily connected to Christianity, though, is it? No, because for basically the, the, the prerequisite for Freemasonry is that you believe in a supreme creator. Because the whole, the whole body of symbolism, the whole meaning of the, the craft ritual is predicated around the idea of the great architect. So, you know, if you're an atheist and you don't believe that there is a supreme creator, then the fundamental cornerstone of the whole philosophy and the whole system of symbolism is basically moot, you see. Mm. You accept the idea that there, is, that there is meaning and order to the universe, that there is a great architect. Because in Freemasonry, the whole universe is essentially looked at and conceived of as a great work of architecture. And so Freemasons that have labored to build sacred edifices, be they temples or uh, cathedrals, are attempting to emulate this process whereby the universe was created as an act of geometry, as an act of architecture. And originally, the terms masonry and geometry were synonymous. 
you know that's that's taught right in the Masonic ritual, and that it's that you know you are told in the second degree of Freemasonry that's the key to the whole symbolism, the whole symbolical edifice of Freemasonry is geometry. And I mean, hey, think about the, the, the what's the most well known uh I mean, what's the most well known Masonic symbol that we all associate? Right, the square, the compasses with the letter G. Right, right. right. And the square and the compasses, the compasses, of course, the in fundamental instruments of geometry, and what do you suppose the G represents? Hmm. Geometry. Think about it. Exactly. Yeah. But but it's not limited to geometry, but that's one of the principal meanings. And it also means God, of course, too. But, hmm. you know, the idea is God is, in Masonic uh, parlance, is the grand geometrician of the universe. You see? Right. So masonry is essentially is... is preserved a heritage of extremely rich and beautiful symbolism and powerful, meaningful symbolism for for humans from a time immemorial, you know, because we, even though the modern Masonic Lodge can only trace back, you know, no further than the Middle Ages, we find the parallels to Freemasonry going back at the very dawn of history. And, you know, when we look at the, at the very beginning of history, we see these great works of of architecture whether it's in egypt or samaria you know or the indus valley and in all of them we find geometry embedded we find astronomy embedded we can come over here to the new world and we discover that at the same time these great cities and temples are being built uh over uh, you know in these other places the first wave of great monumental earthwork building is is um being undertaken here in 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 North America, and you find that the geometry and the um, astronomy and the symbolism is the same throughout, um, which to me is a very interesting, opens up some very interesting implications, uh, which again gets us back to this idea of, you know, when we talked about earlier about the idea of what would happen in the aftermath of a catastrophe if, if only 10% of the population survived, right? Let's Let's conjecture for a minute. Let's suppose we discover that we have a, a doomsday asteroid headed towards us. It's going to hit us. It's going to come here in five or ten years or two years or whatever. And it, it happens. Civilization is wiped out. And in the aftermath of that, you have people that you have two groups of survivors, two classes of survivors. Those who survive because of the luck of the draw, they happen to be in the right place at the right time, or those who survived because they intended to survive. Now, that is one of the traditions that we find embedded in myths from all over the place is that, you know, there were various people who had foreknowledge that the world was about to be destroyed, whether it was by flood or fire or some other means, the world was about to be destroyed. They took uh, measures to preserve themselves, their posterity, and the legacy of their own learning and science and so forth. I mean, in Freemasonry, is there's this story of Enoch, who, who knew that there was going to be this great flood coming, and it was going to wipe everything out, and so he built this nine-chambered underground vault in which he was able to preserve um, in, a, in, in, in codified form the science and technology and wisdom of his era. He sealed it over. Again, it was nine layers deep, and then he erected two pillars, to one that could survive uh, fire, one that could survive flood, and these pillars instructed the found the, the whoever found it in the aftermath of these catastrophes that there existed this underground vault with this great treasure of knowledge in it. See, that has parallels 
from in many other cultures too the idea that there was some some body of information or knowledge preserved you know when you look at the beginnings of history we see something very unusual which is that you know you look at, at egypt is a, a preeminent example here you had living in the nile valley you basically had subsistence agriculture being practiced for at least several millennium going back to eight or nine thousand years ago with with very little uh cultural or, or social evolution then suddenly like suddenly around four thousand five hundred years ago boom they're building huge pyramids within one generation they're building these massive structures of stone at the same time you've got the the, the first wave of sumerian ziggurats going up in the tigris euphrates valley you've got these great cities in the Indus Valley, like uh, Mohenjo-Daro and Harappas, you have the first wave of the great megalithic structures going up in England. What was the impetus for this? Well, I would suggest that essentially what you might have had was in the aftermath of the cataclysm, it took three or four millennium for the population to recover enough that there was a labor force available to undertake projects on this monumental scale. We find the same thing in, in a lesser degree back at the beginning of the Middle Ages, because if we go back to the mid-6th century, there was a global climate catastrophe that occurred between 536 and 542 A.D. In the year 536, there was a series of very unusual climate events that caused a significant cooling of the global climate. Uh, it, it, what's interesting is that the stories of the Grail Quest place the whole... Uh, the whole timing of King Arthur and the knights and the quest for the grail exactly in that time period. You know, uh, Arthur is usually considered to have been killed at the Battle of Camlan, or Camlon, which is usually placed at 540 A.D., right? So the quest for the grail would have been in the roughly five years leading up to that, see? What's interesting about that is we now know that something very significant happened to the global climate. And if you recall in the, in the Grail romances, in the Grail stories, which, which were written in the late 11 and early 1200s, what we saw was that you know, the, the kingdom of Logres, which was Britain, became a wasteland, and King Arthur became infirm. He became ill. And the only cure for King Arthur was also the cure for the, for the devastated land that had been transformed into a wasteland. They had to find the grail. The knights went out to find the grail so that the grail could restore both the king and the land, you see. But what we see is that what actually happened was that large sections of northern Europe did get turned into a wasteland precisely during that period of time. There were multiple uh, crop failures over a period of about three or four years that left uh, the population of Europe uh, malnourished. And it was in those weakened uh, immune systems that the uh, Justinian plague was able to exploit and wipe out a third the population of Europe in 542-543 AD. Human, the progress of human society was essentially set back for 300 years. And for, for the following 300 years after that onset, around 540 AD, what we had was essentially a, a period where what we call the Dark Ages is not just figurative. It was literally a period of, of dark where 
over and over again, commentators from the time described the, the feebleness of the sun and, and how for weeks at a time sometimes the sun didn't, didn't show in the sky, and when it did, it was only a, a pale reflection of itself. Well, come around 900 to 950 A.D., the cold of the Dark Ages passed, and the climate shifted into a period of global warmth, which is referred to as the medieval warm period. And what we saw happening during the medieval warm period was that population began to rebound because, for one thing, the warmth extended the length of the growing season by, by weeks. It extended the, um, the latitude at which farming could viably be practiced by, by hundreds of miles. Um, sea levels came up. Greenland warmed to the point where, uh, you know, colonists from Scandinavia were able to, to farm on the west coast of Greenland where it's now permanently frozen, where it's, where it's permafrost. Hmm. Um, there was a flourishing wine industry in England where hundreds of miles further north than they'd ever been able to grow wine grapes and so on. And then what happened is between like 950 and 1150 A.D. was this global warmth brought on a period of prosperity. And people became basically wealthy, and instead of living, you know, day-to-day um, trying to survive, suddenly there was plenty to eat. What we see is population expands lifespans expand, human uh, infant mortality decreases, and by the time we get to the early 1100s, European population had become relatively wealthy, and there were surpluses, and it was this wealth that was a- that made it possible to launch this great cathedral-building enterprise that um, began around 1140 A.D. and lasted until the early 1300s. And the demise of the cathedral building era, and during this time there were over 80 of the grand monuments built from Chartres to Amiens to Reims to Notre Dame, Léon, etc., etc. There was over 500 smaller abbeys built during this period of prolific building that went on. And what made that possible was the fact that, that the climate had warmed and had allowed society to become prosperous again. Okay. What I'm suggesting is that this was an analog for what happened much earlier in that after the aftermath of the Ice Age, we had these catastrophic climate changes, but then the, the, the planet, the climate of Earth went into a roughly 3,000 year period that is known as the climatic optimum or hypsothermal. This would have been the time, basically the era, what is, we think of as the goddess era. And it was an era that was probably characterized by diminished human population uh, in a human population in a state of recovery after the cataclysms that terminated the, the Ice Age. But it was also a very warm period of time, um, maybe as much as two to three degrees warmer than now. And what that did is it meant that the growing season was six weeks, seven weeks longer. It meant that there was prolific vegetation and there was no co- uh, no competition for resources because you had a, a, a diminished human population. And this was during the time, if, 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 you know, the Bible talks about be fruitful and multiply, well, you know, this would be the, the directive that you would want to follow if the human population had been reduced yeah. to, to, to the threshold of extinction. And then, you, of course, think about the whole thing. Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth and subdue it. Well, replenish, not plenish, replenish the earth, clearly yeah. implying that there had been some previous order of things that needed to be restored, see? And so I, what I'm suggesting is that just as we see the great cathedral building era emerging 
out of this 150 years of relative prosperity, I think we're seeing, and, and also with the, you know, in the earlier, three or 400 years earlier than that, there, there was not, you know, during the Dark Ages, you couldn't have built cathedrals because there was no labor force. Yeah. You see? Same way, when we go back 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 years ago, basically what we're doing is we're seeing the recovery of, of a crashed human population. When we get to between four and 5,000 years ago, I think now the numbers of humans have rebounded to the point where, yes, now we have a sufficient labor force to build a 480-foot-tall pyramid, to build the seven great cities in Samaria, et cetera, et cetera. Now, then the question becomes, where did the knowledge and the impetus come from to organize humans people on that scale of things. Well, now that gets back to the idea that I was suggesting before, that perhaps there were two classes of, of people that survived. One would be those who survived by luck, who were essentially thrown back into the Stone Age and had to then, you know, start all over again and climb back up for the next three or 4,000 years. And then perhaps those who were able to survive because they intended to survive, it was part of a plan, they were able to preserve certain technical information and scientific information but it's just like you know you may know how to build a computer but if you don't have the infrastructure available you're not going to be able to do it see right. it took four thousand five thousand years for you know there to be a labor force available to begin building pyramids and building these great cities and these sacred temples and so on which then raises the mystery of course is who were these you know, who, who were these hypothetical survivors that may have been the, the custodians of this knowledge? All right. Well, we're just about out of time. Um, okay. <laughs> and uh, this has been utterly fascinating, as it always is when I have you on. Um, you have uh, sacredgeometryinternational.com, and you have another website as well, right? Uh, yes, there's cosmographicresearch.org which I haven't updated in a couple of years, but it has a lot of good preliminary information for people who would like to uh, see some of the more specifics and some of the actual scientific uh, evidence uh, for the nature of some of these catastrophes that I've been talking about. Okay. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so those would be the two websites. And there's some links there to some other things that I think people would find interesting. Are, are are you going to be working on a book at any particular time? I've actually been, yeah, I've been writing one. I've got about 150 pages written, and it's primarily, this first first outing is, is primarily centered around the symbolism of the grail. Mm. And I'm using that as a point of departure for exploring a lot of these things that we've been talking about here tonight. Okay. All right. That's really interesting. I can't wait till you get that done. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> and uh, do you I'm sell hoping it'll sell, you know, 10 million copies, and then, <laughs> and you're also then I'm on my way. You're also going to be featured in Graham Hancock's new book, right? Uh, that's the rumor. All right. Awesome. I hope it comes true. Um, I mean, the plan at, at, pre the plan at present is uh, I'm going to actually take him out in the field in early September. Oh. Um, he, he's researching for... Uh, his sequel to Fingerprints of the Gods, which is going to be Magicians of the Gods, right. which I'm sure is going to be totally awesome. Um, but, yeah, one of the things... That, see, Graham, very briefly, what, what he's been doing in his research is focusing on the evidence uh, for the fact that there have been these lost civilizations and, 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 and established a pretty 
powerful case that, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that can't be explained in any other way than the fact that other than that there were higher civil, not necessarily higher than we're at now, but there have been advanced civilizations in the past and they have disappeared. I have focused on the nature of the catastrophes. So there's a complementarity there in, in that I, the work that I've been doing explains why these cultures became lost to history. Right. You see? So some of the things that we're, that, he's interest, that he's interested in researching for his upcoming book is what actually happened around 13,000 years ago. And there is evidence now that there was probably something from space, most likely a comet, that collided with the with the Earth thirteen thousand years ago. All right. It may have been the most most significant impact that the Earth has suffered in five million years. And so, a lot of the research that I've been doing, uh, the field research over the last twenty years, has been collecting data and evidence to support that conclusion that that is what happened. So, in September, if everything goes to plan according to plan, I'm going to take Graham and he and I are going to go out for you know, maybe 10 days or so, and I'm going to basically introduce him to a lot of this field evidence for global catastrophe 13,000 years ago. Awesome. All right. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, thank you again, Randall. And we're going to close things out tonight with uh, something new. This is a band called Mechanism from Florida. The EP is called The Dance at the End of the World, and this is a song called Bring Back the Sun. This has been Where Did the Road oh, Go? Wow. That's, that seems to be uh, apropos for what we've been talking about, isn't it? Exactly. All right. All right well, I'll give a listen. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Randall. Great to talk to you again, Soraya. All right. We'll have to have you back All right. soon. All right. Sounds good. Bye-bye.